Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. And today I'm excited to have Pranav Pai, who's the founding partner and chief investment officer at 314 Capital, an early stage venture capital fund based in Bangalore. As 314 manages a combined corpus of $110 million, Pranav is deeply involved with the startup ecosystem and leads investments and portfolio construction at 314 Capital. Uh, as a part of 314, he's made more than 50 seed and venture capital investments across several investment categories in India and US. Uh, Pranav is also the investment committee member of the Reliance Geo, GenX accelerator in Mumbai. Pranav graduated with his master's in electrical engineering from Stanford University uh, uh, with a bachelor's in electronics and communications learning from RV College, Bangalore. Uh, welcome to the show, Pranav. Thanks, Rohit. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, so you know, what got you interested to uh, get into this crazy world of investing? That's a good question. Um, so, I quickly backtrack to how I got started with tech in general. After uh, doing my undergrad in Bangalore, I'm, Bangalore, I'm a Bangalore and born and raised. Right. I had a big decision to make. Uh, would I continue down the standard engineering path, enter IT or whatever opportunities were available in Bangalore in early 2011? That was just, just the start of the startup craze, if you will. Flipkart was just getting to the uh, $200 million valuation mark, right. if you remember. Uh, or the other path is, of course, go to the US or the UK or Australia. That's another standard path and, you know, get entrenched in industry somewhere else. Right. Uh, I made a very interesting commitment to myself back then that uh, while I would go to the U.S. to study, uh, I wanted to specialize in, in a set of domains that I had a lot of interest in. Uh, I had committed to myself to coming back and training myself for opportunities I would identify here while I was outside. So having an outside view in is you know, usually sometimes the clearest way to uh, find confidence in what you would commit to. And I found that after seven years outside, uh, that really gave me perspective on what I could do in a more constructive way when I came back to Bangalore. So that's how I, that's how I found uh, my edge in the intersection between tech and finance. I had the good fortune of being one of the early employees in a tech startup in the Bay Area right after graduating from Stanford. Uh, so I was on the other side of the table. I got to learn, of course, how you build a tech startup from day zero. Uh, and of course, now, uh, as I look back, that's invaluable experience. I think the best way to learn how to invest is by first actually working in a startup or a couple of startups, uh, seeing the path from zero to series B, series C, even acquisition if you can, or an exit, and understanding uh, how the other side feels before you move on to uh, how financing and, and therefore tech investing should work. So I think that's the kind of perspective I've been fortunate to have. And that's what led me eventually down to uh, having the opportunity to start a fund like 314 when I came back to Bangalore. So that's how I got started. That's a quick one minute sum summary right. of my journey this decade. All right. And uh, what was the initial fund size when you, when you started with uh, 314? So we started our first fund in 2016 okay. uh, with an initial commit of 50 crores. Uh, Siddharth and I, uh, by the way, were brothers. Uh, right. So it was fairly easy for us to commit to working with each other because we had fairly complex. Of course, we knew each other very well. That, 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 that goes without being said. Right. But more importantly, we had very complementary skills. Uh, Siddharth is a, a CA by training, uh, a CPA in the US. And I'm an engineer, of course, by training. Uh, he had fairly deep experience for, a, for a, someone his age, having run audits for large companies, having worked in one of Bangalore's top audit firms. And uh, that gives you a very cross-sectional perspective to how businesses run. 
specifically in India, because of course our regulatory environment is fairly unique. Uh, we have a bunch of rules that you don't see anywhere else, at least in the top countries, at least in the US where I, where I had most of my work experience. So both of us came together to say, uh, look, we have a certain view of how early stage should work. And we think we can prove that with a 50 crore initial corpus. We were also very fortunate to have a extremely friendly uh, first LP on our side. And uh, as, as we look back at how that first fund performed, we were I'm happy to share that we were able to double the size to 100 crores fairly quickly, given the kind of companies we'd invested. And uh, this is the first fund uh, is at 100 crores and it stayed at 100 crores uh, as we scaled up. Today, in 2019, as we end 2019, enter 2020, we now manage uh, 800 crores or $110 million um, as of January 1st, and we should be launching a new fund in 2020. Uh, so just to, give, just to zoom out, we started our first fund with less than 10 million. Today, we're at 110 million four years later. In four years, awesome. Right. And so, so do you think the funds, uh, usually the life cycle is for five years and then, you know, you, you, you park some of the money to reinvest into those startups. Is that how uh, it works? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one model we've seen. Uh, so at 314, we have a fairly deep set of principles we've, we've committed to, uh, the first, of course, uh, many, many other things, but one among them is that we don't reinvest capital. We firmly believe that if we've invested capital and should that capital be returned ahead of schedule, for whatever reason, maybe the company decided to fold, fold and shut down, return capital back, or maybe it got acquired very early. So that's also, that's also sometimes a great thing because you can, uh, you know, that's a good good end up for the founders, especially. Uh, we always return capital back, so we don't reinvest, we don't recycle capital, and therefore our cycles are slightly longer. Uh, usually in the early stage, uh, we structure funds between seven and eight years in term, and as we uh, go towards the mid stage. Uh, we, we wouldn't be surprised if it get, if it stays at seven to eight because now in India it still takes some more time for companies to reach maturation and right. uh, when they're ready for a reasonable size exit. Uh, so our funds typically hover around the seven to eight year term. Got it. And, and what is the internal uh, you know decision uh, uh, at three one four? Who who gets to decide you know what are the what are the kind of investments you want to make and uh, are you guys sector agnostic? Yeah, so that's that's something that we spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, when we first launched in 2016, uh, we actually had a negative list of areas we wouldn't invest in uh, for very simple reasons. So I'll give you a simple example. We, we decided we wouldn't do anything in wallets. Uh, and if you remember back then, 2014 to 2017 was a big push for wallets until UPI came out in early 2017. And then, of course, the business model had to change. We didn't know, of course, that UPI was coming as a disruption, but turned out that not investing in a new wallet in 2015 is actually a good decision. Uh, we had a similar view of horizontal e-commerce. We firmly fundamentally believe that horizontal e-commerce, uh, it, would, it would be a long time before that became a sustainable business model. And that's a game for much larger funds to fight because you need billions to stay alive and make it at scale. Uh, turned out that's a good decision also because most of the uh, non-top five e-commerce startups, at least the horizontal ones, didn't end up uh, surviving long-term. So we had a bunch of things that we knew we wouldn't invest in uh, for, for many reasons. And each for each one, we had a specific set of reasons. Therefore, left a very finite set of opportunities we could chase. Uh, the top three among them, I, I'd say in hindsight, turned out to be very good decisions from a timing point of view. The first thing we decided to do was find very interesting startups in high margin areas where a lot of capital attention uh, wasn't being received at that point in time. A good example of companies we found 
in in that kind of thinking as a comp- for instance a company called lucius uh, you might have heard of lucius today it's it basically a category creator it's india's largest full stack protein company mm-hmm. all kinds of protein products including meat uh, so that was one of the examples of a high margin business that we were looking for it, it, it's in the consumer domain completely in the consumer domain but because of what we would see as a very interesting uh, side path towards sustainability we thought that that's something that we'd like to pursue from from day one basically help that company set up so it's a good example of the kind of things we are looking for the second kind of example were companies in the media and content space again this was just before jio right our view yeah. was that look while india has very low smartphone penetration still some of the highest uh, cellular data rates in the world this has to change it's not sustainable and we saw a future where there were more indians online there were far more smartphones cellular data was far more accessible although jio even surpassed our own expectations and therefore people will be spending a lot of time online and if you dissect what they do when they spend time online they communicate a lot more with their networks so no surprise that whatsapp became a big hit they spend a lot of time consuming content whether it's news whether it's entertainment whether it's audio whether it's video and of course the third thing they do is they shop online so we decided that uh, number 2 where they get where they spend time online on content that's something that we wanted to build a very deep focus in and we were amongst the first early stage funds to actually have a dedicated focus in media and uh, content development that's purely digital uh, fast forward to today where uh, fortunate to be in some of the best media brands in the country uh, including your story pocket aces some newer ones like the podcast app in vernacular kuku a local news app called local uh india's largest character development studio a company called graphic comics uh, so very interesting kind of uh, view that gave us these kind of opportunities in media and content development so i can go on but right. uh, this is how we basically found our niche with our first fund and since then of course we've added fintech we've added enterprise uh, we have a fairly deep view of how india can develop interesting ip they're called deep technology companies today but the markets need not necessarily be india you can go global with the right kind of team and the right kind of channel access so we also focus significantly in deep tech areas uh, things like agri tech things like drone technologies uh, things like semiconductor design uh, these also form a fairly big part of our focus in india uh, interesting you know you, you you said that you had a negative list but uh, do you think as a fund manager do you need to specialize or or you know maybe generalize later on I think that's a it's a very good question it completely depends on the founding principles of the firm so i know a lot of firms uh, even in india for example uh, definitely in the us that mm-hmm. are wildly successful being sectoral firms so only fintech or only e-commerce or only brands or yeah. only enterprise right, right. Uh, and that's a that's a that's a great way to you know find domain market fit and build a niche for yourself as a firm the other way i've seen uh funds form thesis and th- that's how we did it we did we took the second part is that we identify what the market is and what timing environment we are in right now we firmly believe that given where india is right now as as, as in terms of its market evolution we still think most of the digital opportunities are just starting right uh, mm-hmm. a good example is even our enterprise markets uh, if you look at where are large indian companies spending their it budgets they still still spending a very small fraction on new cloud based or saas based technologies they just starting procurement and designing their mindsets to procure saas technologies and use them internally right so you can argue that india is just about starting a india for india saas play and this would be a fantastic time to add saas 
to your to your thinking as a as an early stage VC fund. Uh, so if we were only sectoral, for instance, if we were doing only fintech, if we were doing only consumer, we'd miss this entire large market opportunity opening up in front of our eyes. So we decided to be agnostic, but we decided to have a very specific set of focus areas, which we have to understand first before we get into it. So that's how we've designed our firm. We think India is in a very different position. So we need to be open to opportunities here that might not be open in other countries and other markets that you would be serving. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you also mentioned that you looked at content and media uh, in 2016-17, but, uh, you know, podcast is, is content marketing, but uh, is it possible to get the kind of, uh, you know, valuations with which what a consumer or a SaaS company would get when it comes to, you know, content or media company, because it's difficult to monetize such sort of platforms. Yes, uh, that's that's been the conventional thinking so far uh, for three fundamental reasons. There were three blockers for content companies not scaling out as quickly as the other type of companies you mentioned. The first blocker was since most digital content still runs on the ad-based monetization strategy, right. the CPMs in India are still fairly low compared to peers in the US or the UK or anywhere else uh, in the top content consuming domains. Japan's a good example. So with, with CPIs being low, it takes far larger volumes and therefore far more time to reach the same kind of monetization you would reach anywhere else. That's, that's been one problem. Second problem has been that there's still a behavioral change that we're in the midst of that hasn't fully fructified yet. So not one, one line of thinking is not enough Indians consume all of their content or a sufficiently high segment of their content purely online. But we actually think there's a large market of Indians already online that are now becoming digital first. So our view and our timing of where we are in this content consuming market is slightly, you would say slightly ahead because of the data we have from the investments we've already made. So uh, in, in that sense, we think the timing, we're, we're already in the right time. In fact, now's the time to build a portfolio because from here it accelerates far more in terms of penetration. The CPI, uh, the, 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 cost, the cost, of course, the monetization question is still, the rates are still low. It's uniformly low for most of India. And the third, the third big problem was that we didn't have enough local content for Indians to consume once they went online, right? So in the US, for example, I mean, just look at the world, right? The, which are the top content companies that come to your mind? There's Disney. Right. If you go to gaming, there's Activision, there's Take Two, there's EA. Again, most of them are American companies. There are a couple of Japanese companies like Nintendo and Sony. And then maybe you'll find something like Riot or or some of the other games coming out of Scandinavia, right? Yeah. So the content ecosystem in the world is still predominantly dominated uh, by companies uh, companies that are not from India. So if you look at that as a problem, in fact, we looked at that as an opportunity. We have the opportunity to actually become the first past the gear in building a content library for India. In, of course, uh, tens of languages. As Indians go online and start looking for more local content that they want to uh, consume. And that's why we think platforms like Local, Cuckoo, Your Story, Pocket Aces, uh, all, all, the, all the companies that we funded, each of them are going after specific niches of content and building very deep. We think that's the first, that's like the first wave of value creation you can do when a digital entertainment ecosystem needs to be built. Uh, we unfortunately don't have the opportunity to build our own channels. So you can argue that this is true for most of the world. The, world, uh, the UK's YouTube is YouTube, just like India's YouTube is YouTube. Yeah. The, the, uh, the UK's Netflix is Netflix, just like India's Netflix is Netflix, but we have competition with Hotstar and Amazon Prime and so on. Very few Indian companies have actually gotten to scale to become a destination or channel of sorts for digital content. 
In fact, I'm happy to see that ShareChat and Daily Hunt and a few are now getting to scale uh, sufficiently large to actually be content or channel destinations for publishing companies like the ones I mentioned that the ones we funded. So I think while the channel opportunity needs a lot of capital, again, that's something that we couldn't do. Uh, we do have the opportunity to become the first large publishers in India. And that's the opportunity we went out. Got it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I run the podcast, I consume a lot of podcasts. And I, I was, I also got uh, Rainy Wang, who uh, was the CEO of Castbox, which is one of the, one of the largest podcast directories. And, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, on episode number 100. And we, we discussed about how monetization is a problem for, for, for a lot of podcasters. But uh, very interestingly, you also invested into an Indian company called Kuku, Kuku FM. You know, what made That's you right. invest into, into this podcast platform? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, while I was in the US, I also was just in the midst of that podcast wave coming up. Yeah. Uh, we saw three things happening in, in, in the US's podcast market. The first thing was... Uh, the podcast wave actually started in 2004 or 2005, right? I remember being in school and, and there were a couple of podcasts on history and, and technology and news. NPR was one of the first ones. Uh, those were actually fairly well produced, but unfortunately very, very small uh, audiences. Uh, because at that point in time, while not enough people had iPods, you didn't have as much of a uh, easy way of connecting your iPod to your car or to a, to a Bluetooth speaker. That kind of hardware didn't exist. You fast forward to 2015 and suddenly there are Bluetooth speakers everywhere. You have, you know, something, you, have, you don't have a smart speaker yet, but you do have a Bose or something at home. And of course, you're plugging your audio jack to your car. And if you're a commute a market like the US is predominantly, where everyone, most people get to work in a car, uh, then you want to burn that half an hour, 45 minutes listening to something. So the US is fairly different in terms of how its wave began and sustained. In India, yeah. we're seeing something else. We're seeing something which is, frankly, a much more exciting opportunity for us in India. Number one is we don't have one predominant language in which people are consuming audio content. While videos, you can argue English and Hindi are still doing really well, and we haven't saturated the market enough in those two languages yet. When you come to audio, people's fundamental audio behaviors are crafted by radio. And if you look at different regions in India, I'm from Karnataka. I know the, at least the, the Bangalore ecosystem fairly well. Most of our audio superstars are in Canada or in Canada meets English, right? Okay. Uh, and they're playing, they're usually in the mornings, they're usually in the commute time. There's a fairly well-known well set of RJs. This is true in Mumbai. I know this is true in Delhi. This is true in most of the country. And most of the other non-entertainment content in audio, like your news, your passions, your, your uh, education, your edutainment, everything usually is a hybrid mix of uh, one language and the other, either Hindi or some other local language or English and some other local language. So we thought that, look, there's a production wave that has to come that supports Indian creators in audio and brings this kind of local content online. And strangely, we have, we still have the opportunity to build a content uh, discovery platform or a content distribution platform alongside producing the content. So we can actually, to give you a simple analogy, build the YouTube of podcasts as well as the top videos on YouTube, right? right. Uh, and, and usually you're either one or the other, you're either a platform or the publisher. But in this case, as you start scaling up, your audience tells you what they want more of. And therefore you can spend capital um, far more efficiently in supporting the content that does best for your audience on your platform at that point in time. So that's why we thought Cuckoo would be a very interesting way for us to actually expand from content production, uh, just making content, 
to content distribution as well, which is building a platform that on top of which the content is consumed. So that's doing fairly well so far. We're actually very surprised by how quickly that app, that, that team has scaled. They're over a million users now. They're, they're actually trending very, very well on DAUs. Uh, they're almost becoming a daily habit. Uh, their top users are now using Cuckoo for more than an hour at once, oh, wow. which is fascinating. Yeah. And we're learning more about how Indians consume content now. It's not just with a phone locked in front of their eyes. It's also passive listening, which is how you, uh, I mentioned the US example of driving to work. Correct. Many people here are now with Bluetooth earphones walking to work or going on a lunch break or trying to figure out what happened in the news with a quick catch up over a coffee. So a lot of these behaviors have also seeped into India's public life. And that's why we think the audio uh, ecosystem is at the right time as far as building production and distribution as well. So sorry about the long answer, right. but this is something that we were also very excited to find. We finally have an opportunity to get in early in both aspects of the content ecosystem. Interesting. And, um, you know, uh, uh, do you think the ownership, uh, uh, you know, when you invest into companies uh, is based on the first check or is it, is it built over time? You know, I mean, can you get a 20% ownership in the, in the first check itself? Yeah, that's a good question. So that, that again comes down to the founding principles of the firm. I know at least a dozen very successful firms. I can argue that they basically crafted the industry, uh, the VC industry as it is today, the firms like Sequoia and KBCV and so on, who have the uh, very clear principle of getting to target holding, meaning whether it's 22%, whether it's 25%, each firm has its own target holding in the first round or at most by the second round, right? So even yeah. YouTube, when Sequoia committed to YouTube in the seed round, uh, they had an internal memo whereby it's, it's it, this is this memo is public, so I can talk about it. Whereby by the Series A, by the next round, so within two rounds, they had to get to around 25, 27%. Right? Uh, so we at 314 also have target holdings for each of our companies, but we average up, which means we take our holding up over time. We don't start with a large holding and then average down, meaning we let we let ourselves get diluted. We average up because we found that that's a much better way to manage risk. Averaging up is not a new concept. Uh, in fact, it's fairly popularly used in public markets, again, where there's high liquidity. But we find that in a low liquidity environment, especially early stage India, as it stands today, averaging up is actually a great way to manage risk and not over-concentrate in any one company too early in that company's journey. Uh, this is a fairly technical portfolio construction, but so far it's worked for us. Uh, so far, it's helped us allocate capital the right way. And we found that founders also like getting to know us before they give us more ownership. That's true of any founder and true of any fund. And I'm sure even if you went out to raise a startup tomorrow uh, or raise funding for your startup tomorrow, you'd want to get to know the investor before you give them 25% of your company. Correct. Uh, so we found that that works for both sides. It's, it's, a, it's a slightly different approach, uh, but we, that, we find that that's working for us so far. Will we change tomorrow? We might. The market might change. And there might be a lot more capital available in five years from now. Then there's more competition. Uh, therefore, there's a more of a requirement to get your target holding as early because then you might not have a chance later. So we will also evolve as the market evolves. But so far, we found this working for us fairly well. Right. And, and, and Pranav, do you, do you think uh, with, with SoftBank and a lot of other late stage funds which are coming into India, uh, do you think one of the biggest challenges is abundance of capital uh, uh, because of what has happened with WeWork and Uber in the last couple of years? Uh, do you think uh, there's been abundance of capital and, and you know the, the power has shifted back to the entrepreneur? 
that's yeah that's a good op- that's a good question actually i don't think that that's true for india yet so just to give you some data because this is something we study very closely okay. uh, the world crossed a record a world record for capital invested in the venture space in 2018 i think we crossed 200 billion dollars as per the kpmg kpmg report mm. uh, that's more than when any any amount of money that's gone into startups in any year since venture capital started and what happened was if you look at where the money went most of the money went to the late stage companies that were already thought of as winners so the ubers the bite dances the dds Uh, and and of course uh, many of the tencent subsidiaries the tencent music subsidiaries so on and so forth right so what we're seeing is while there of course there is more capital allocated to venture than any time before more of it is being concentrated in the top companies that are already late stage and therefore supposed to go public but they're not so while more company more money is coming fewer companies are getting it and that uh, money going to them is preventing them from going public uh, that much earlier that's why you will you read several posts and several opinions by uh, vcs and hedge fund managers when they argue on stage especially in the us that look a lot of the value that these startups are supposed to bring to the public markets is being consumed privately before they go public one consequence of that is when so much money rushes into this asset class it tends to not want to take the same kind of risk even though that asset class is overall much more riskier than say bonds or everything else that you've been doing with that money before you came into vc so if that much more money wants to take less risk it's natural that they concentrate in companies that are already winners right so that's not a surprise as a consequence of that there's actually less money coming into the early stage and if you look at that same data set that kpmg uh, published fewer seed rounds are happening right. uh, in the same time as the capital total capital increases what's happening in the early stage is the same thing there's more money but there are fewer companies getting funded therefore more money in every company in the early stage getting funded uh, and that's happening in india as well now because now in india we're going through this phenomenon of uh, second time or third time entrepreneurs who are getting back to the game raising their uh, starting their next startups raising their next rounds so cult fit and uh, you know uh, jiten gupta's company and a bunch of other companies in uh, actually 2019 was a big rush of second and third time entrepreneurs and i'm sure that'll going to happen in 2020 as well uh we right. think that that's something that indicates a maturation of the early stage where one wave of success is complete the second wave starting and that usually means much faster accretion of capital and much much faster scale ups towards the late stage uh, this is actually similar to what happened to china in the early part of the 2010s and in 2011 2012 is when this started happening in china and most of the chinese unicorns are by second or third time entrepreneurs Uh, so i wouldn't be surprised if this accelerates and india is actually reaching this point very interestingly at a time when we are also maturing as a venture ecosystem as a whole uh, so a lot of interesting convergences you wouldn't have planned you couldn't have planned for this even 5 years back but that's what we're seeing happening in india today interesting and you know you you talk about softbank and sequoia you know sequoia has come up with uh, sequoia surge and there are other larger funds which who are playing at seed stage so, so what do you think about larger funds that's you know coming into into seed stage and how how does i think overall that's you? a very good thing i think that's a really good thing uh, so first of all softbank look with a 100 billion dollar fund it's very hard for them to do early stage so i actually have a lot of respect for their strategy where they where they're patient uh, they want to pick spaces and markets carefully they want to be careful about picking the number one company and making sure it stays number one right. uh, of course they put in 
so much capital that it takes time for the company to understand how to deploy that capital efficiently. And that's why sometimes you will have a couple of companies that don't do that very well. So VWorks is a good example. But right. that can't be, of course, that can't be generalized to the entire portfolio. While few companies may struggle to deploy that capital efficiently, many of them will use that capital to their advantage. Ola and so on have done, done so very well. And I think there will be uh, far, more far more success stories coming out of that late stage experiment. So I think SoftBank has shown the world that there's a lot of value to be earned from having this focus on technology or venture-backed companies coming to pre-IPO. Coming back to the early stage now, since such a large fund was launched, this is again historical, you have to respect that. A lot of the typical mid-stage funds, right, uh, they would have to go a couple of stages earlier. And then the early stage funds would have to start doing seeds. So there's been basically a left shift in terms of the stage evolution. And all the funds that are serious about capturing value from venture have had to figure out how to do that earlier. So I'm actually pleased that a lot of the larger funds from the US that have come to India, the Sequoia is a good, Sequoia is a good example, the Lightspeeds, the Axles, and so on. Uh, they've actually all started dedicated seed programs. Uh, that's very, very, that's very good for this ecosystem because then the rate at which good ideas get funded so that they can test their thesis, they can test their markets, they can test their business plans, that, that rate accelerates. And therefore, what is going to work, how to answer that question becomes that much faster. So it becomes a much more positive feedback loop for the rest of us uh, who can also now understand, okay, these markets are opening up. These kind of founders are coming out to start new companies. Uh, we can help, of course, match founders to the ideas and the markets that we have some domain expertise in. So we become far uh, more efficient at finding good people to work with, to back interesting ideas. So this whole thing has a very interesting positive spiral. And that's why I think the accelerant on the expansion of the early stage in India, uh, these, are the, these are the vectors that added to it. So it's very good. I think overall, I'm very positive about the moves that have happened over the last three years. And I'm very excited about what's coming over the next five years. Got it. And you know, you've been part of other consumer uh, startups like Licious and all. Do you think we are in a consumer bubble right now? Because, you know, the CAC sizes are, are increasing year after year, you know, uh, since, uh, you know, the ad costs on Instagram, on Facebook is increasing. So, so do you think we are in, in doing some sort of a bubble there? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So there are two ways of looking at that. Uh, number one is, at this point in time, as we enter 2020, there are more Indians online than there ever have been before in history. Right? There are yeah. more Instagram users, more WhatsApp yeah. users, more smartphone users, more internet users in general. Right? So the rate at which the, the digital Indian citizenship is growing, it's right. 10 times, in fact, 25 times faster than the Indian population growth rate, which is around 1.1, 1.2% right? right. per annum. So that shows you how fast India has evolved as a digital citizenry. That's number one. Now, number two, startups are not interested any longer in just acquiring any online Indian. Almost all of them that know what they're doing are going after very specific segments, right? Yeah. So for example, Baiju is not going after every kid. Baiju yeah. as a, a tech company is going after very specific segments of children in very specific cities, uh, maybe pursuing one board versus the other or uh, looking or searching in Google for one term versus the other. So their segmentation now becomes far, far more finessed. Therefore, if they're paying more to sift through a much larger base to find a very specific segment, you and I shouldn't be surprised that they have to pay a little bit more to find those people. 
right? Yeah. It's the same thing that happened in the US as well. Of course, in India, it happened much faster. It happened in six or seven years here. It took 20 years in the US. So I think it's expected that CACs would increase because you're much more selective today and yeah. the base is much, much, much larger. So of course, you would have to pay more to filter down. That's number one. At the same time, the kinds of segments you're going after now in India. So if you're Baiju or if you're, uh, you know, uh, take some other tech company, Unacademy is a good example. They've scaled really quickly. You're going now after the same kinds of populations online. And you have to therefore compete not just for attention, but also for the quality of your product, uh, the, the pricing of your product, the referrals, uh, the reviews that other kids have left on your product. So suddenly it takes a lot more time and capital to differentiate because competitions increase, right? So again, you don't mind spending more because you're trying to fight that battle for mindshare in your target user segment. So again, it's a good thing that there are more companies now becoming more specialized in segmentation and now understanding who they will compete with for their attention. So I'll put all that together. CACs have to go up. Of course, because those segments are now valuable, how do you know they're valuable? They've started spending money online. You're going after the parents who you know for sure bought a Baiju subscription last year. You're going after the parents who you know for sure are the profile of parents who usually send their kids for IIT coaching or whatever. So I'm just giving you one specific example. Right. Because education is really something all of us in India have gone through, so we know about. But that's a very interesting way of understanding why the monetizing potential of these segments, the competition for the segments themselves, and the sheer number of segments over which you can specialize, since all that has gotten deeper, costs will go up. And of course, the monetization has also gone up. More people are spending more money online. So you can actually build fairly sustainable companies if you manage to play this balance in a scientific way. Of course, you can always go wrong. You could always overspend on CAC and not know how to monetize and build lifetime value. That's a recipe for usually for not a sustainable company. Uh, that also happens, of course. But again, in my mind, the founders who know what they're doing, I think they're using this completely to their advantage. Right. Yeah, I mean, the focus on building a brand, uh, you know, uh, that, that can really help them increase the lifetime value. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And one and, thing, Rohit, uh, uh, yeah. that, you know, since you also work for a startup, you'll know Correct. that what these startups are doing is very interestingly, if you just zoom out, they are trying to do in four or five years what typically used to take 20 years to do, right? Yeah. Uh, since we're on the topic of ed tech, NIIT, I respect that organization. They have trained hundreds of thousands of uh, engineers and, and uh, computer professionals and given them skills, given them degrees, placed them in a job. They've been doing this for 25 years, right? Correct. But what Baiju did, he compressed the entire life cycle of building a brand and building scale and did it in less than five years, right? And he did this for, not for graduate students who, you know, who are 18 to 22 years old, therefore adults who have some idea of what they're looking for. He did this for children who don't spend the money, but he had to convince parents to spend the money. So he had a two-party consumer side. So the sophistication and the rate at which you need to build these kind of brands, all of that has accelerated almost exponentially. Therefore, the amount of capital you need to spend to get through all of these things in that time frame, obviously not a surprise, has to be much higher. It's only worth it, of course, if it works. <laughs> That's always yeah. true. And of course, if there's a sustainable, clear business model in the end. So Baidu is a fantastic example of a company that did all this in five years and today is amongst the most valuable unicorns in India and surprisingly, quote unquote, profitable.
Right. Uh, he'll actually throw profits when he reports his next year's earnings, I'm sure. So this is this is what India's capable of supporting today, and it's a good thing for all of us. I think it's phenomenal for India to be uh, supporting these kind of companies, this kind of drive towards sustainability in this short of time period, this efficiently. It's a great testament. I'm very happy to see how far we've come. And you know, it's, it's, there's a listener who's a, who's a, who's a budding entrepreneur who's trying to trying to raise funds. Uh, what is it uh, you know they would need to do in order to uh, apply to three one four? What do you look for an entrepreneur? Do you, do you think it's, it's, it's the market size or the team or or, the, or, or you know the idea? What, what is it that excites you? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we were raising capital ourselves before I started three one four, we would always ask this question: What does it take to raise from? Fund X or Fund Y, right? right. Uh, and these are big brand fund, funds, of course, if you're in the Bay Area. And every fund has its own uh, optimized parameter or overweight parameter. So, for example, for Fund X, it might be that it's market, right? If the market's right, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter if you build it in one year or two years, we'll make it happen. It's a right market. It's a right, it's it's a right place to be. I know funds that only overweight on team. Okay, I have to know you. I have to know your references. I have to have some kind of history with you. I have to be able to share the same values before I decide, look, whatever you're going after, I'm backing you no matter what. Right? So there's, and the third of course is a great product. It doesn't matter who built it. doesn't matter what market, if it's a product that, that's working, it's making money. People can't get enough of it. Forget everything else. Just try to rush into that company, get a piece before it becomes too expensive. So all three parameters, people, product, and market. Uh, we've seen that being used in different ways in different funds. Uh, the fourth big parameter that, we try to optimize for because you know that these three are always important. We have to look for some combination. Uh, we try to optimize for timing. Uh, we have to be convinced that this is the right time for this this team to build this product in this space, right? And that's the hardest evaluation to make because timing is always right in hindsight. It's never right. You never have the full confidence when you're actually making that decision. Uh, so if you ask me what keeps me up at night and therefore what we have to be really good at. If we have to attract the right kind of founders, if we have to be valuable to the right kind of founders, uh, it's how we can pull all these four forces together uh, to make ourselves the best possible capital partners for early stage founders. So that's what we do. Uh, and if you to answer your question, uh, the kind of founders we like working with are the founders who share a similar view of all of these four parameters. Uh, they have a similar approach to what we think will work. Uh, they have a similar sense of timing. They have a similar sense of what a sustainable end product looks like four or five or six years down the line. And uh, our finest moments have come when we work with founding teams that have alignment with, our, with us in all of these points. And then we work backwards. So if you want to be uh, a 500 crore revenue company in six and a half years from now, what are we doing in the first year? What are we doing in the first month? What are we doing in the first week? Uh, how much money are we raising now? Uh, everything has to be worked backwards. From that. So that's how we, Try to work with founders. We, we so far, I'm happy to say, done it with many of them and had a great run at it. Uh, so we look forward to doing much more of this. So founders are approaching us. This is very plainly how we think. Right. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put that, uh, we'll put the, <clears throat> the, the contact information on in, in the show notes. But I, okay. I, I want to talk about uh, your, your father, Mr. Mohan Das Pai, who is the ex uh, CEO for Infosys and uh, Padmashri Awari. How did your father journey at Infosys changed change your mentality towards towards investing and how you how you look at the world because I think Infosys is one of the only few Indian companies which not only went on to build wealth for the founders and the employees but also you know the general public. So uh, so what uh, uh, you know your, your time spent with your father? How did 
it uh, you know change your mentality to look at uh, your career and investing in general absolutely that's a great question now we actually we debate this all the time so mm-hmm. it's a great question to answer so i think the top 3 things that i learned from from his time at infosys uh, and you mentioned a lot of their success metrics uh, is number one i think infosys wouldn't be what they are today without a very clear value system being entrenched top down right and it comes down to mr murthy mr nilakuni mr mr gopal krishnan the founding team and uh, how they built their first layer of leadership which includes of course uh, my father uh, mr balakrishnan and dozen of them right. so what they did was very clearly decide that there would be a certain type of company that would never compromise on a certain set of values so whether it meant losing a client because they asked you to do certain things you weren't comfortable doing whether it means not raising a single rupee of private capital and only raising capital when you're ready to go public so they basically ran the entire company on uh, their own money on revenues and on bank loans until they went public in the indian markets uh, it's a phenomenal story if if you go online i'm sure you'll get many accounts of that uh, going from there to being the first indian company to list on nasdaq in 99 and now being a 45 billion dollar company uh, and having created so much value for their shareholders i think you work backwards and aligning behind that value set is very clearly what gave them that more the number the number two thing that i think we learned from them is an uncompromising system of governance now until very recently of course uh, a lot of questions uh, have been asked about okay what does governance mean mean in india is india an easy place to do business uh, is government on your side against you uh, what does taxation look like how can rules change every year of course a lot of questions about uh, what you would call as the emerging indian economy but infosys is amongst one of the few companies there has dfc and there's a bunch of them but amongst a handful of companies that showed that in spite of whatever changes outside right if you're able to align with one set of standards and governance practices nothing can shake you out of how strong a moat that builds for you so even until today the infosys balance sheet uh, the annual report is amongst the top <coughs> award earners anywhere in the world right uh, that kind of principle focus even in how they operationalize finances that's something that unless you see it uh, it's very hard to know that's even possible so that's that's the second big thing we learned and of course that feeds into how we write our reports how we build our deck how we uh, give our our investors our lps uh, an analysis of what we're doing uh, all of that is very very deeply informed by how we saw infosys scale out and the third very important thing i think this is maybe the hardest uh, to learn uh, but un- until you do it it's it's very hard to actually think it's possible is how to think about your investors and stakeholders before you think about yourself right now infosys is one of the few companies where they've actually made you know maybe the most number of lakhpatis or crorepatis as Absolutely. a company than most other companies you can count on and uh, in fact my father was part of the team that wrote one of the first esop policies for a company in india no and there's a very uh, very famous story about how you know the, the taxation authorities had a lot of challenges in taxing that that esop construct because they never seen it before how do you tax something that you never seen before right so uh, that basically made employee wealth generation a, a very standard protocol for all of india's uh, companies and that's something that even today startups employ if you've seen if you work in a startup you know the value of an esop and how it can change lives correct uh, that's something that came down from people who thought that way so Uh, they could all have become far richer of course given themselves all those shares but they distributed that there's a very clean esop policy they instituted 
till this day it still survived of course it's gone through many upgrades there are now 250000 people so how do you manage 250000 people on a limited esop pool is an interesting question to answer but all things considered uh, those are the kind of learnings uh, we had the uh, good fortune of being exposed to very early and that i would attribute a large part of what we know and the principles we align to uh, because of uh, what we learned from him so uh, full full attribution to him and uh, the, the full infosys founding team in general no absolutely infosys has been has been one of the greatest wealth creators and i, I remember the early 2000s you know a lot of parents wanted the kids to work in infosys uh, and you know they they changed the entire uh, ecosystem but i quickly absolutely. want to do the the top 3 what's your favorite business book Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I actually I had the good fortune of being at Stanford when Peter Thiel was teaching the class that eventually became the zero to one book. Oh. So that that actually I got to see the journey from lecture to underground lecture notes on Reddit. Ah, uh, sorry, on GitHub to then becoming a published book, and of course one of the all time bestsellers in that category. Okay. Zero to one has a special place in my in my mind. Uh, but if I zoom out to other books, uh, this may be something that many people haven't read before. So I thought I'd mention it. It's a book by Albert Hirschman called Exit Voice and Loyalty. It's a particularly interesting book for me because he's an economist. He's a fairly well-known one. Uh, I like, in general, authors that take one set of frameworks or or principles they've learned in one domain, and they try to apply it to another domain to see how much of a cross fabric you can build to mesh learnings and therefore give you a new way to look at things. And in Exit Voice and Loyalty, I think he applied economic principles to just general. economics influence social behavior and looked at how people leave organizations that they have lost loyalty for or how they entrench themselves even further in their loyalty for for some organization or how they exercise voice their capacity to change the organization to a towards a view that they hold so it's a it's a fairly academic book if you read through it but it's it just opens up your mind to how to apply these very interesting principles and theories to everyday life and that of course got me started on a number of other books uh, nasim talab is a favorite author of mine skill right. in the game is maybe the most accessible book he's written so i'll mention that also but that's a quick set of books that i really enjoyed reading got it and you know if you could go back in time when you started your fund what is the one thing you would have focused on or, or anything you would have done differently yeah that's again uh, i'll i'll cheat a little bit and tell you in hindsight uh, right. so that and i will both agree we should have raised a little bit more capital <laughs> because <laughs> we did not have so we we started the fund with a very clear notion of setting up a track record before we raised serious capital right but uh, you know we we had no idea that we would actually pick a good set of companies that actually grew so quickly so uh, the one thing we've learned is how to protect our stakes our holdings in companies much much longer we we don't like to get diluted out of our companies too early and having more capital of course in your fund allows you to stay invested for long Uh, so we fixed our problem of course and that's how we've increased capital under management so quickly but that's a good lesson to learn in hindsight now and put into your first fund in practice but you know we learned it the way we learned it so no regrets all right and do you have any favorite online tool for example uh, gmail slack zoom oh yeah absolutely um i pay for a lot of the great products i use and that's a good principle of mine because now i know how hard it is to build a online only software product so mm-hmm. my favorite products are uh, pocket I love Pocket. Uh, it's made reading for me much easier online. Right. I organize all my all of my reading on Pocket. I sincerely recommend that. I think it got bought recently by Firefox. Uh, so hopefully, yeah. it's going to stay alive for much longer now. It's a great tool. Yeah. And I also enjoy using Grammarly. Uh, it's a writing tool. It's very similar to uh, a bunch of the other tools that your previous uh, 
podcast episodes have mentioned uh, hemingway is a good example right. but they've done a great job of making writing much easier right and and what is the best way people can reach out to you uh, uh, and reach out to you one for oh yeah so we're everywhere we're on twitter we're on linkedin so to reach me maybe linkedin's the best uh, it's the most focused network uh, to find me if you want to talk about work uh, in general at me at, at on twitter i'm fairly easily uh, searchable there as well if you want to talk about everything else and work no problem yeah. uh, don't facebook me please uh, i don't use facebook as much my apologies Yeah. And to reach three one four again, we're everywhere. Uh, our emails on our website. We have a very simple to use contact form. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Google. We're on Twitter. So at us anywhere. Right. We, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Pranav, thank you so much for coming onto the show and uh, speaking to us. Uh, Thanks so much, Rajesh. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.